You're listening to the free, abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can yeah. still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. Welcome to the Energy Transition Show. I'm your host, Chris Milder. This is part seven of our mini-series on the basics of energy. In the first three parts of this mini-series, which you can find in episode 119, we explored some foundational concepts about energy, including what energy is, the laws of thermodynamics, and why we have to convert energy from one form to another. And in parts 4 through 6, which you can find in episode 126, we covered what electricity is, how various generators work, and we introduced how the electricity transmission and distribution systems are structured and managed. In this episode, we'll start by going deeper into the electricity industry and review why it evolved as it did. We'll briefly revisit the history of utility regulation, and we'll introduce the so-called regulated service model that defines how utilities make their money. Then we'll revisit the restructuring of some electricity markets in the U.S. and see how that helped open them up for renewable resources like wind and solar. And in the second part of this episode, we'll take a deeper dive into the state of the electricity industry today, including the various types of markets and their governance. And finally, in the third part, we'll go another layer deep on how wholesale power markets operate, as well as on the relationships between wholesale and retail power markets. In keeping with our mission of making as much content available for free as possible, we're making the first part of this set of three mini-episodes available to all, while the second and third parts will only be available to full Energy Transition Show members. To hear the other episodes in this educational mini-series on the Energy Basics, as well as the rest of our catalog of full-length episodes, point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. And now, let's meet our instructor for this episode. Dr. Paul Comor is the founder of the RACI Education Programs at the Renewable and Sustainable Energy Institute and a lecturer in the Environmental Studies Program at the University of Colorado Boulder. Paul has an active research program in renewable electricity policy and teaches undergraduate and graduate courses in energy technology and policy. Previously, he was the project director at the U.S. Congress's Office of Technology Assessment. Prior to that, he taught at the Woodrow Wilson School at Princeton University. He's a terrific and seasoned teacher, and I'm very pleased that he was willing to teach these modules of our Energy Basics mini-series. All right, let's get started. Providing reliable electric power is the backbone of our modern economy, so it has to be extremely reliable. That suggests that the operation of the grid can't just be left up to private sector companies competing in markets because markets can fail. There needs to be some governing entity to ensure that the power will always come on when we flip a switch. At the same time, in many cases, we do want the grid to be operated by private sector companies in order to encourage innovation and take advantage of the benefits of competition, like lower prices. 
Ever since the first electric company was founded in the 19th century, this tension, in which we ask private sector companies to provide an extremely reliable public good, has been at the heart of key questions about who should run the grid, how it should be governed, and about the balance of power between public and private interests. And as the utility industry has evolved, we have found several different ways to strike that balance. Today we have some utilities that are a socially licensed monopoly with complete control and ownership of their grids from the power plants all the way through to the customer who uses the electricity. We also have other kinds of utilities that are owned and operated by various public agencies. And then there are several other models in which control and ownership is shared in various ways between public entities and private entities that compete in markets. And somehow, in all of these different models, we have to make sure that everybody gets paid and that electricity supply always equals demand. It's a complex and confusing landscape without any obvious rhyme or reason, but in order to see the real challenges and opportunities in energy transition, it's essential that we understand it. So let's go now to our instructor for this episode and let Dr. Comor give us a tour of the complex world of the electricity industry. Dr. Comor, in the previous part of this mini-series, we got an initial look at the two main models for distribution utilities, the monopoly model and the restructured utility model. And in this part, we're going to explore both of those models more deeply. So let's start at the beginning. How did we end up with the monopoly model in the first place? Well, Chris, it goes back to 19th century, 1882. Thomas Edison opened up an electricity system. He built some power plants in Manhattan and sent electricity out. It went crazy from there. People rapidly figured out that electricity is great. It's really handy stuff to have. And and electricity systems spread around the U.S., Chicago, for example. There's a lot going on. And as more people bought electricity and wanted electricity, it became a, a problem. I mean, it didn't make sense to run multiple wires into your house or into your apartment building or your industrial facility. That clearly didn't make a lot of sense. But then as everybody started to have electricity... If you only have one company, they can charge whatever they want, and you're stuck with that. So it rapidly became clear about 1910, 1920s, that government had to play a role here. That if you just let a company do whatever they want, they charge whatever they want. And that wasn't good. That led to a lot of people being unhappy. So, as I recall, when utilities were first evolving, there was lots and lots of participants that were coming into the market. And in places like New York City, for example, we had just spaghetti strewn everywhere uh, across poles stretching all over the city. And that was part of the reasoning of, for a monopoly model. It was like, let's just have one company with one set of wires. <laughs> yep. Then it makes sense. Or it did back then. You know, as we'll talk about shortly, maybe it didn't make sense, but too late. That's the thinking at the time. You only want one set of wires. There was also concerns about safety. The thinking was electricity is dangerous. We want to make sure it's handled carefully. So for a variety of reasons, there was seen as the need for a government role in the 1910s, 1920s. The same was going on with railroads at the time. People needed railroads to get around. And the railroad companies, there was concern they would just charge whatever they want and provide dangerous service. So the state started to regulate railroads. And soon after that, the state started to regulate electricity and create what an economist would call a natural monopoly. 
So we started with a bunch of private companies stringing their own wires everywhere, with no particular restraints or controls on them, just private sector companies acting in their own self-interest. But at some point it became clear that if we kept going down that path, we'd wind up with a massive web of wires everywhere, and things that are in the public interest, like safety, affordability, and reliability, would just get lost in the process. So that's when we started looking for ways to regulate and control the industry to provide for the public interest. And that marked the beginning of state regulation, so this was happening uh, again, 1905s, 1910s, where state government said, hey, we need to be involved. We need to make sure these companies are charging reasonable rates, that they're providing reliable service, and that they are safe. And that was driven by politics, by regular people saying, hey, this isn't working. They're charging too much. We don't trust them. So the rise state by state started to create these state regulatory agencies, often called public utility commissions, public service commissions. The name varies by state, but it's the same idea. The state regulates the company. The company can't charge whatever they want. The company can't do whatever they want. The state has to approve their rates and approve, in some cases, major investments like new power plants. Some smart companies figured out that if they cross state lines, then the states couldn't really control them. So the way the U.S. works is states can only regulate what happens within their state. They're not allowed to be involved or do anything about what's called interstate commerce. That is anything that moves across a state line. And that goes back to the Constitution. So a company's figured out that they could, in some cases, build a power plant in another state, run that electricity into a state, charge whatever they want for that electricity. There was some, I would say, less than straightforward dealings across state lines. So the utility companies thought that they could put their power plants in a neighboring state and then just ship that power into the state where their customers were in order to work around state regulation? Exactly. And those attempts were successful in the sense that these handful of enormous companies called holding companies crossed multiple state lines, controlled more and more of the electricity system around the country, and evaded state regulation. So what did we do about that? Well, we passed legislation at the federal level called the Federal Power Act 1935 and something related called PUCA, Public Utility Holding Companies Act. They said, you can't do that. And they essentially broke up those really large multi-state holding companies that the companies set up to evade state regulation. The federal government said, don't do that. You're not allowed to do that. And they broke them up essentially by state and made it very difficult for these companies to operate in more than one state. So clearly we needed something more than private sector companies just pursuing their own economic interests. And we needed to ensure that they were not able to circumvent the regulatory oversight of the states. That led to states granting a monopoly to certain companies providing power in their states, but also regulating their investments and their profits in what we now call the regulated service model. How did that evolution happen? Well, what happened after that legislation, and this was post-depression, there was a lot happening, we ended up with a system that lasted from, say, late 1930s until the last 20 years when it started to change again, which we'll talk about in just a minute. So we had this regulated service model where utility typically, not always, typically utility operates just within a state, and they are regulated by the state. And its system, I think most people would say, worked pretty well. You know, about the 1970s, we started to have problems. But from 1935, 1940, up until 70s, 80s, 90s, worked pretty well. It was a deal. The companies were guaranteed profit. 
So they were a low-risk investment. They were a low-risk stock. It was called a widows and orphans stock because you would get dependable dividends every month because the company was guaranteed not to go out of business. They were guaranteed a profit. So it was a real low-risk investment. And the state government said, we guarantee your profit, but we control you and you can't charge whatever you want. Your rates are regulated. If you want to build or buy a big new power plant, we have to basically overlook that and make sure it's okay. It works pretty well, I think is a fair way to summarize it. People got reliable electricity. The rates were reasonable as defined by the state and nobody was really unhappy. The system worked pretty well. And what were utilities guaranteed a profit on? On any investment they made, basically their rate base, their things they owned. So they would build a new power plant they would earn a profit on that investment. And that profit rate was set and guaranteed by the state regulator. Were they also not guaranteed a profit on the power generation itself? Well, basically the profit function is a real complex, messy thing, but it's a function of the rate base. It's the stuff they own. So yeah, I think you could say that when they sold you power, they made a profit off that, or they sold you electricity more accurately. That was a profitable deal for them. And they were guaranteed a profit, 8 or 10%, something reasonable, but not excessive. So unlike nearly all other businesses in which you make a profit margin off of whatever you're selling, the utilities at this stage didn't earn their profits by marking up the electricity they were selling. Instead, they earned a guaranteed profit margin determined by regulators on their investments, the things they own, which we call the rate base. It was because it was that collection of investments, the power plants, the transmission lines, substations, and other assets, on which regulators would calculate their profits under this model. In this old school regulated model, there was a utility and it did three things. It generated electricity, it had power plants, it transmitted electricity, it moved it around, and it distributed electricity to your house, to your building, to your apartment. So the traditional, what's called a vertically integrated regulated utility had three functions, generation, transmission, and distribution. And in some parts of the US and other countries around the world, it still works that way. You know, there's not agreement saying it's a good or bad model. It's just the way it is. That said, to your question, it started to fall apart or crack, I'd say, in the 1970s in the U.S. There were several problems that became clear with this model. The first was, back to early 1970s, a lot of electricity was generated with oil. Well, oil had gotten cheaper year by year, so electricity prices went down year by year. Everybody was happy. All of a sudden, due to what's called the oil crisis or oil shocks in the 1970s, Oil prices went way up from $10, $20 a barrel to $100 a barrel. So electricity prices went up and there was a public outcry. There are other problems. The utilities were building a lot of nuclear power plants. A lot of those didn't work out so well. So there was growing kind of public and political pressure saying, we don't think this model is really working. What didn't work well about building those nuclear plants? That's a long story, but there were some well-publicized technical problems. Three Mile Island is one many people have heard of where there was a major accident or we'll call it an incident at a nuclear power plant. So that got a lot of publicity. There was a movie that came out at the same time called The China Syndrome. It was a fictional story, but about a design problem at a nuclear power plant that was seen as exposed to earthquakes. So a lot of public feeling that nuclear is a bad idea. And there were public demonstrations. There were fundraising concerts and people had no nukes posters all over. It was a controversial time. And a lot of these nuclear power plants turned out to be outrageously expensive and took really long time to finish. 
So there's general feeling that maybe this utility model isn't really working. But this is also around the same time that wind in particular was starting to become relevant and there was more interest in renewables. So how did we start to integrate that? Yeah, so the federal government stuck a wedge in the system called PURPA. They passed a federal law that essentially said utilities, or more accurately, state regulators, you need to open up the system. That is, utilities have to be willing to buy electricity from someone else. They can't just generate their own under certain kind of economic and technical conditions. Prior to that, if I said, hey, I want to put up a wind turbine or a solar farm and I want to sell into the system, I couldn't. It wasn't open or available for me to do that. But after Congress passed legislation in 1978 called PURPA, I could do that. I could go to the utility and say, hey, I'm generating electricity via this, let's say, a biomass technology. And I want to sell it to you. And the utility had to say yes if I could come to them with a reasonable price. So it essentially opened up generation to non-utility generators. And how is a reasonable price defined? This kind of amorphous concept called avoided cost. So basically the idea was if a utility could buy it from me, Paul's biomass plant, and the price I offered was lower than they would have cost them to generate themselves, then they would have to do it. Gotcha. And of course, that's a tough thing to pin down, and there's a lot of fighting over what that number ought to be. But essentially what happened is states that really wanted renewables on the system, like California, set that avoided, what's called the avoided cost, pretty high. And as a result, a lot of new generation, non-utility renewables flooded into the system. So PURPA, which is an acronym for the Public Utility Regulatory Policies Act of 1978, was a watershed moment because it created for the first time this opportunity for non-utility players to build power plants and give them the right to sell that power to utilities when the utilities would have rather just continued to own and operate all their own power plants without any outside participants. And that was done through this avoided cost mechanism. If somebody could generate power at or below the cost of having the utility generate it, the utility had to buy it from them. And as you mentioned a moment ago, actually a lot of the first plants built under PURPA were in fact biomass plants, right? Yes, because this was the late 1970s, early 1980s. Wind and solar PV were technically not well-proven and very expensive. So they just weren't really playing much in this game. There were some wind turbines built in California. They didn't work that well. They were fairly high priced. It was early in the technological development cycle. So they certainly were not anywhere like where they are today. Right. And so tell us about these biomass plants that were built under PURPA. So they worked pretty well. They often used agricultural products that were left over, almond shells, things like that. And they provided electricity. Some of them were cogen, which is a way to make heat and electricity at the same time. And they entered the system. At that point, there was also some geothermal coming into the system via PURPA contracts in California. So from a higher level, the policy worked. It opened up the system and new renewables flooded in. Wind, maybe not so much. I was teaching out in California at this point and took my students out to see the wind farms that were called PURPA machines, meaning they were there because of this policy. And some of them didn't work so well. You know, it was early in the technology. They had problems. A lot of them were built in the Altamont Pass, which turned out to be a migration path for raptors. Problems with bird kills, problems with not very good technical performance. It was new technology then, and it took quite years of proving. Well, here we are, 2020, 35, 40 years later, the technology works great, but it takes a while to make those things work. 
You referred a moment ago to these biomass plants as cogen. Yeah. We described them in the previous episode by their other name, CHP, combined heat and power. Yeah. So that really was kind of the beginning of PURPA. How did PURPA then lead to the evolution of these other kinds of renewables coming on to the system at scale? And and maybe it's good to talk about California as an example here, because that's really where a lot of that stuff started happening, right? Yeah. In the U.S., California has been a leader in innovation and electricity. And sometimes that's worked out really well, sometimes not so well. But it's a good place to look at because if we look at, for example, what California is seeing now in terms of grid integration, it's a problem the rest of us are going to face in five, 10 years. So it's a great case study. So after PURPA created this kind of crack in the system, and it's like you think of the utility structure as this rigorous thing, and the federal government poked a screwdriver and wedged a little crack where the renewables could go in. They did something uh, a few years after that, 1992, the Energy Policy Act that in effect opened up the transmission system and essentially said to a utility, if you've got transmission, you have to, under some conditions, let other people use it. So it was called the wheeling. So it took a while to evolve, but it got to the point in the 1990s where California took a big, bold, and ultimately disastrous step called restructuring. California did this essentially at this point kind of mind-blowing thing that says we're throwing out this entire regulated system. We are going to tell the utilities that they can't generate electricity. They have to sell off their power plants and we're going to open up wholesale generation to a market. This is a huge thing at the time. This was mid-1990s, very controversial, but it passed. So essentially in California, the utility companies that used to generate and transmit and distribute couldn't generate. They were forced out of the generation business. They had to sell all their power plants and they had to buy electricity from essentially lowest bidder. And where did that lead us? Because I think some of our listeners certainly will recall Enron as being a a notable sort of point along this line that you're describing here. (laughs) Yeah, it it was a fascinating time. It was a challenging time. So here's what happened. California passed this legislation, AB 1890, famous or infamous, 96, and opened up the generation system. It was a brand new thing and it was exciting and innovative and there was a lot of hope and expectation that there'd be a lot of new technologies and renewables and lower prices from competition. Because from a market perspective, competition can and usually does drive price down. So there's a lot of optimism that this is something new and exciting, which it was. And it went fine for the first couple of years. And throughout the country, and in some cases, other countries, there was a feeling like this is the way to go. And I remember people in the industry saying, our state is going to so-called restructure. It's not if, it's just when. Maybe we'll do it next year. We're working on legislation. So California went first. Other states followed quickly along, passing legislation to do essentially the same thing. This is mid-late 1990s. And things seemed to be working okay until all of a sudden they didn't. The California system went horribly wrong. It's essentially what happened in the 1920s is there's a lot of people pointing fingers in different directions, but several things went bad. First problem was in the 1990s, when California was arguing about how this was going to happen, nobody invested in new power plants because they didn't know if they could make money at it. So utilities could see the writing on the wall. They weren't going to build a new power plant and then have to sell it off. Outside investors were thinking, well, maybe this is going to be a way I can make money and build a power plant, but I'm not sure. 
So as this happened in 1990s, there wasn't a knot of new capacity, new power plants being built in California. And then some smart actors, like Enron, the infamous one, realized that they could essentially sell into the California market, avoid regulation, have high-priced power plants, do gaming to drive prices up. So there was kind of a bidding system, for example, an open market. But if you control enough power plants, you could say, I'm just not going to sell until the price goes up. So the utility that needs electricity to serve their customers would say, okay, well, we'll pay you more. If you own enough power plants, control enough power plants, you say, no. And this goes on and on. The prices could get outrageously high, and that's what they did. So California saw very high electricity prices and rolling blackouts. Not an hour here, a few hours there, but days, weeks with power shortages. It was a disaster. And that's when restructuring started to kind of take a step back in California. And many other states as well. So California tried to put the lid on the box, but it was already kind of late. Put the genie back in the bottle, however you want to say it. But it was really hard to do. But California managed to do that. The governor got recalled because he got blamed for this, even though he wasn't around when it was done. Other states that were in the process tried to put the brakes on it because they said, wow, that's a disaster. Let's not do that. And some states put the total kibosh on restructuring. Other states said, well, it still could work. We just don't want to do it wrong the way California did. So there was kind of a mishmash of some states having restructured competitive systems and some states not and other states being somewhere in the middle. And that's the way it is today, 20 years later. So how many states today are quote unquote restructured? Well, one way to think about it is about two thirds of electricity sales in the U.S. are in a competitive system. Okay. That gives you a feeling. So you can say roughly 30 to 35 states are restructured. It really gets down to really what you mean by restructured. But there are some old school states like where I'm in, Colorado. Colorado didn't do any of that stuff. We still have a PUC and vertically integrated utilities that generate, transmit, distribute. So we're an example of a state that just didn't go down that path. All right. Well, now it's been a couple decades since the restructuring experiment, if you will, began. Can we now render a verdict on whether or not competitive markets and generation actually reduced prices? Because that really was sort of the rationale, right? Yeah. And there's been studies and you can pick your result and find a study to support it. So, <laughs> But I'll give a few data points. The EU has restructured in all its member countries. They're required to do so. My opinion, that system's working pretty well. But we have competitive wholesale markets, which we'll talk more about in a few minutes, in about, again, two-thirds of the U.S. They seem to be working well. My opinion and my reading of the data is it did work. It was pretty ugly up early. I'm sorry for those folks in California that suffered through rolling blackouts that lasted weeks and suffered through very high electricity prices. That was bad. But now we've got a reasonable system. Not only are rates reasonable, what's more important is competitive forces have led to technological innovation. In other words, we have wind and solar PV that's pretty inexpensive and works well. I'm not sure we would have had that in the old system because utilities had no incentive to actually adopt new technologies. Right, because before restructuring, this regulated service model had led the utilities to become pretty stagnant, and there was no motivation for them to become innovative or to accommodate these new types of renewables onto their systems. 
Absolutely. Imagine you are a private company and the state is looking at you. And if you try to do something new and innovative, all you'll do is get in trouble for it. You're guaranteed a profit, but you are punished for taking on risk of any sort. So you do the same old thing because that's what everybody wants you to do. Right. And that's a rational thing for utility to do. They weren't bad or evil or dumb. That's the outcome of a regulated system is technological stagnance. And that's what we had. So now we know how we wound up with the wacky set of utility models that we have today. We started with the first utilities just doing what was profitable for them. Then we started regulating them at the state level and granting them monopolies and guaranteed profits in exchange for regulatory control. Then we forced utilities to allow competition and buy power from outside independent power producers if they could produce it more cheaply than the utilities, which really was the key opening that allowed renewables to start gaining a toehold in an industry that had until then been dominated by by fossil and nuclear plants. And then we had an era of restructuring in which some states hived off generation from the rest of the business and made it into its own competitive market while continuing to regulate the utilities. In the next part, we'll talk about how the electricity industry works today. That concludes part seven of our Energy Basics miniseries. We learned how utilities are regulated and how they get paid, and we started to see how regulated service models and rate-based investing have inhibited innovation in the grid power industry. We also learned how power markets had to evolve in order to accommodate new kinds of renewables, mostly starting with biomass-fired CHP plants, and then later wind and solar projects. And this evolution continues today as grid power markets are being challenged to evolve even more, to accommodate new types of resources like flexible demand and grid interactive storage systems. Now we can move on to the next part and take a deeper dive into the structure and governance of utility markets. We hope you've enjoyed this free mini-episode of the Energy Transition Show. This episode was part of a mini-series consisting of short, roughly 20-minute shows that are designed to teach the basics of energy. The other two mini-episodes in this set of three are only available to subscribers. Subscribers have access to our complete catalog of all shows, including our full-length shows, which are typically 60 to 90 minutes long, as well as our interactive transcripts, our extensive show notes, and other subscriber-only benefits. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. To hear the other episodes in this educational mini-series on the energy basics, as well as the rest of our catalog of full-length episodes, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. There are several ways to become a subscriber. Individuals can join for $60 a year or $6.99 a month. We also offer discounted subscriptions for students and professors, which you can find at energytransitionshow.com discounts. And institutions like universities and corporations can purchase site licenses to let everyone with an email in their domain access our full subscriber offerings. You can find those at energytransitionshow.com slash group options. The first 33 full episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be. So if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. So please join us today and support our ad-free show, featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews, news, and educational series like this about the most important story of our time, Energy Transition. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. 
Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at MikeSugarMusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.